time for our journey to begin. You walk through our forests, yet you remain a mystery. What are you? Why do you hide? land we call wilderness, there lives a creature that has become one with legend. At the moment it's about to have an unpleasant encounter with the self-styled masters of the wilderness, man. that feeling that something's watching you, you know? And something's just, just staring at you. All of a sudden, I see something poke its head up around, around the tree. It goes like this right here and pokes out like this, staring at me. I said, whoa, I can't, you know? I said, I ain't no bear, you know? My goodness, I've seen so many daggone Bigfoots, I can't even count them. I mean, it's beyond the point of infinity. We, 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 we want to tell the truth, you know? And we do tell the truth. We do not lie about stuff. We don't exaggerate. We don't make stuff up. Uh, when we, you know, we've got the stuff. We've got the pictures. But people, a lot of people, they're not open-minded. They can't see stuff, you know, and uh, they just can't see it because they're not a researcher. They're not out in the field like we are doing our thing, you know. Uh, just you know, but Dallas, you know, he's uh, they don't come any better than Dallas when it comes to Bigfoot research, in my opinion. What makes us the best? Because we believe. What do you think the average IQ of this group is, huh? Can you see Texas up there on your high horse? What do you know about these people? Just observation and deduction. See a propensity for obesity, poverty, a yen for fairy tales. Folks putting what few bucks they do have in the little wicker baskets being passed around. I think it's safe to say that nobody here is going to be splitting the atom, Marty. Some folks enjoy community, the common good. Yeah, well, if the common good's got to make up fairy tales, then it's not good for anybody. You got to get together. Tell yourself stories that violate every law of the universe. Just to get through the goddamn day? No. So goddamn frail, they'd rather put a coin in a wishing well than buy dinner. The legend of the Grunch is based around the eastern part of New Orleans, and it tells of an inbred clan of albino dwarf people who live in the woods and eat goats and humans, forced to live away from society during a time when people who were thought of as different were considered creations of the devil. Because of humanity's cruel nature, these people became a sort of sideshow for teenagers and immature adults. The locals claimed that their seclusion in the woods had caused the people to interbreed 
and combine their abnormalities to eventually become almost inhuman in appearance. At this point in time, the end of that long road, then labeled Grunch Road, was considered nothing but a freak show and occasionally a makeout spot for desperate teens who may not have believed in the legends. That is, until people started to disappear. The main thing you need to know is that if you see a goat on the side of the road in this area of New Orleans, stay in your car. Even if it looks hurt and you want to help that poor goat, it's a trick. If you get out of your car, the grunch will get you and eat your heart and your flesh. You're listening to the OK Talk podcast. Send us an email at oktalkpodcast at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at OK Talk Show. And if you'd be so kind, drop by iTunes, give us a rate and a review. It helps other people find the show. And if you like what you hear, share it. There were few Americans more adventurous than the prospectors, charging off into the unknown West, looking for a fortune in gold. Even once the West was tamed, these men were still on the outskirts of civilization, which put them face to face with all the creatures of the wilderness, including those we've yet to fully understand. In the area around Mount St. Helens lies Ape Canyon. Many features of the area were blown away by the eruption in 1980, but Ape Canyon and its name survived. The lava tube that appeared after the eruption was named Ape Cave, but Ape Canyon existed well before then, holding that moniker because of an event nearly 60 years prior. It was 1924 when Fred Beck and three of his friends entered the area around Mount St. Helens and the Lewis River in southwest Washington. They were, of course, looking for gold, During their excursion, they would run across large, unexplained tracks, and when it would get dark, hear whistling and thumping in the woods around them. That sound familiar? That July, Beck and his friend Marion Smith were headed for water when they spotted a creature standing seven foot tall. It was covered in dark hair. Naturally, the men were armed and opened fire on the beast, with Smith claiming that he had put five rounds into that fool's head, but the creature escaped down a ridge. It wouldn't be gone for long. That night, around midnight, the men were startled awake by a tremendous thud and could see at least two of what they called mountain devils outside, though they were sure they heard more of them. All night, the men endured an assault by the creatures, their cabin pelted with large stones and logs. Some of them tried to break the door down, while others climbed on the roof, which the men described as a sound like a bunch of horses running around. The mountain devils even reached through a hole in the wall, which was made by an earlier stone's throw, and grabbed an axe that was inside. All the while, Beck and company did not fire on them except when they were attacking the cabin, trying fruitlessly to convey the notion that they were simply defending themselves. That morning, the men fled the canyon, but not before shooting at another one of the creatures that was standing nearby, sending it down into the ravine. Beck wouldn't share his story until 1967, when he released a book titled, I Fought the Ape Men of Mount St. Helens. However, Beck put forward an unusual theory. You see, 
he considered himself a psychic, claiming he could divine his way to gold. Beck felt that it was that mental ability that conjured the mountain demons into existence, claiming they were not of flesh and blood, but rather ancient spirits, which were summoned into this world. In 1912, a liner was crossing the Atlantic with a valuable cargo, an Egyptian mummy. It was the body of a prophetess who lived during the reign of Tutankhamun's father-in-law, Amenhotep IV. An ornament found with the mummy bore the spell, Awake from the dream in which you sleep and you will triumph over all that is done against you. Because of its value, the mummy was not carried in the liner's hold, but in a compartment behind the bridge on which the captain stood. The captain's name was Ernest Smith, Commodore of the White Star Fleet, and it was partly because of his errors of judgment that the liner he commanded rammed an iceberg and sank with the loss of 1,513 lives. That liner was the Titanic. I'm going to help thee. You're not going anyways but home. I crossed over to the other side. You what? I saw the tunnel and the white light. I saw my father in hell. Get the fuck out of here. And the bouncer said that I'd be there too when my time comes. What bouncer? The Emerald Piper. That's our hell. It's an Irish bar where it's St. Patrick's Day every day forever. <sighs> Mikey Parmesi and Brendan Fallon were there, too. They were playing dice with two Roman soldiers and a bunch of the Irish guys. Doesn't make sense. And the Irish, they were winning every roll. And then Mikey gave me a message for both of you. Tell Tony and Paulie, three o'clock. Three o'clock? This fucking morphine drip, I don't think it's working. I don't feel a fucking thing. You gotta be careful with that. That was all he said? Oh. Mikey, three o'clock? Yeah. That was a dream. Forget about it, okay? I'm gonna take you home soon. Do they know that this kid likes his chemistry set a little too much? He's in pain. The fuck else they gonna do? A dozen or more ships picked up the SOS, which read, Captain and all officers dead, entire crew dead or dying. And then later, now I am also near death. Then the airwaves went dead. It was a perfect day in February, 1948. And of all the vessels that heard the strange message, only one was able to identify the ship in trouble and pinpoint her position. 
The ship was named the Orang Medan, bound for Jakarta, Indonesia, through the Malacca Strait. Within three hours, the first rescue vessel was alongside the Orang Medan. A crewman later said, Sharks were surging around the hull and it looked like every shark in the Bay of Bengal was honed in, knowing there was death aboard. When there was no response to flag or radio signal, a boat was launched and the rescue party climbed aboard. They found all the ship's officers massed in the chart room as if their skipper had called them to a council of war against some unknown disaster. All had died there. They seemed to have died within seconds of each other. Their eyes stared in horror and their bodies were already locked in rigor mortis, some with their arms pointed to the heavens. The dead shipmen littering the decks had died the same way. A doctor who boarded with the party later reported no signs of poisoning, asphyxiation, or disease, but all seemed to have known that death was coming, even the ship's dog. They found it below the decks with paws in the air, fangs bared in a silent snarl. In the radio shack, the telegrapher had fallen over his silent key. Knowing they could not contain the blaze without flushing pumps and steam for the fire, the salvage crew fled to their own ship. They had only time enough to cut the tow line before the freighter exploded. The blast scattered wreckage for a quarter of a mile and even killed some of the hungry sharks. What was left of the Orang Medan sank. In the short inquiry that followed, the doctor reported that something unknown had killed the men aboard. Although the official verdict says, death by misadventure. The mystery of the ghost ship Orang Medan has never been solved. Allow me to take you back to the spring of 1983 in South Moulton, Devonshire, England where a shepherd by the name of Eric Lay lost a hundred of his sheep over the course of two and a half months. Now the killer did not attack like you would expect a dog to attack, which were common in that part of England, or a fox, but rather attacked the sheep, ripping out their throats, much like you would see a, a wild cat. Lay named the creature the Beast of Exmoor. Those who have seen it describe it as a huge jet black cat, eight feet long from nose to tail. Others have reported a tan or fawn-colored puma-like animal. And in a few instances, two have been spotted, one black, one tan, and seen running around together. A few have even described a beast not looking like a cat at all, but perhaps an unusual dog. These sightings go back all the way to the 70s, but there was no popular attention until Lay reported it and gave it the name of Beast of Exmoor. And in early May that year, Britain's Royal Marines descended on the area and offered a reward of a thousand pounds. Sharpshooters hid among the hills, and some said they even saw something that may be the Beast of Exmoor, but none of them were able to get a clear shot 
And once they moved out, the cat started attacking again. Trevor Beer, a local naturalist, said in the summer of 1984 he was watching birds in an area where deer carcasses had been found and had an encounter with the creature. He wrote, I saw the head and shoulders of a large animal appear out of the bushes. It looked black, rather otter-like, a first impression I shall always remember, for the head was broad and sleek with small ears. The animal's eyes were clear, green-yellow. It stared back at me, and I could clearly make out the thickish neck, powerful-looking forelegs, and deep chest. And without a sound, it turned and moved swiftly away through the trees. It was jet black, I was sure, and long from the body to the tail. I guess about four and a half feet in body length and about two feet high at the shoulders. Beer gave chase, but it was of no use. He said it ran like a greyhound. A very large black panther was his immediate thought. In 1988, a farmer said he saw a fantastic cat going at a hell of a speed. Every time it moved, you could see the light shine back across its ribs. Another time, he saw a huge cat jump a hedge 15 feet from standing with a fair-sized lamb in its mouth. A family in December of 1991 watched a panther-like animal for several minutes as it prowled around their house. Several weeks earlier, their son, 13, had seen it climbing a tree. Of course, as is often, theories range from simple misidentification, perhaps it was a dog, not actually a cat, two creatures intruding from another plane of existence. Most folks say that it's simply domestic cats that have gone feral and people are exaggerating the size. Others say there may be a breeding population of pumas that were let loose by someone who had been keeping them as pets. But some claim that large felines have secretly inhabited the British Isles for quite some time. Britain's coastline is rich in salty tales of smuggling exploits. Many towns with rocky caves nearby claim they are haunted by the ghosts of these contraband runners. One such story is told of Marsden Grotto, a series of caverns between South Shields and Sunderland on England's northeastern coast. The gang using the grotto to land their booty were betrayed by one of their colleagues, a man called John the Jibber. Coast guards were waiting when they rowed their loot ashore from a lugger anchored in Marsden Bay. A friend of the smugglers got wind of the plot and fired a pistol, alerting those aboard the lugger that something had gone wrong. John the Jibber lived to regret his treachery. He was trussed up in a barrel, hoisted to the roof of the cabin, and left to starve to death. The grotto is now a restaurant. His screams have echoed within its walls for more than 150 years.
I'm so baffled by this three o'clock thing, though. I wish I had more for you, Paulie, but that's all he said. Let me ask you a question. Yeah? That bouncer that sent you back, did he have horns on his head? Uh, no. He was just some big Irish goon in old-fashioned clothes. Did anybody there have horns? Or buds for horns? Those goat bumps? Paul, it was fucking hell, okay? Was it hot? Yeah, I don't know. What the fuck? The heat would have been the first thing you noticed. Hell is hot. That's never been disputed by anybody. You didn't go to hell. You went to purgatory, my friend. I forgot all about purgatory. Purgatory. A little detour on our way to paradise. How long do you think we gotta stay there? Now, that's different for everybody. You add up all your mortal sins and multiply that number by 50. Then you add up all your venial sins and multiply that by 25. You add them together, and that's your sentence. I figure I'm gonna have to do about 6,000 years before I get accepted into heaven. And 6,000 years is nothing in eternity times. I could do that standing on my head. It's like a couple of days here. Time is a very curious thing in that we deal with it every single day of our lives. We have a watch, we have a phone that keeps track of it. We count off seconds, count off minutes, hours, but we never even really understand it other than we feel it constantly moves forward. Even feeble attempts for a layperson to understand time is uh, uh, nearly useless. So it shouldn't be too surprising when time doesn't seem to work like we think it should. Again, the constant march forward. In France, 1901, the 10th of August, two middle-aged English women, a college principal, Charlotte Moberly, headmistress, Eleanor Jourdain, were visiting the Palace of Versailles, taking a walk through the gardens, looking for a building called the Petit Trianon. As they wandered through the gardens, looking around, they suddenly stumbled into a group of people wearing strange clothes, what you might expect from pre-revolutionary France, somewhere in the 18th century, so at least 200 years before. They saw a man on the steps of a summer house, dressed again in pre-revolutionary clothes, pockmarked by smallpox, which was common in the 1700s, but not quite so common in 1901. And when they finally did find the building that they were looking for, one of the women saw a woman in an elaborate 18th century gown who was sketching. Now, to Moberly, she appeared to be Marie Antoinette, the famous consort to King Louis XVI. Now, of course, after experiencing such a thing, they went on to write a book about it called An Adventure. And in it, they said that they either had seen ghosts from the mid-1700s or had traveled back to that time period somehow, at least that small area had. Perhaps the 1700s traveled forward. After the book came out, 
a lot of other people came forward and said they had seen similar sights in the Versailles Gardens. And a school teacher had apparently walked through a gate that had been sealed up for over a century. To her, it was just a gate. Now, looking back on it, others have concluded that they must have just run into some people who are dressed for a rehearsal of some sort, a period piece. But what it doesn't explain is the women saw a plow in the gardens, asked a gardener about it, and the gardener claimed to have no knowledge of there being a plow anywhere on the the grounds of the Palace of Versailles. And it also doesn't explain that schoolteacher who walked through a gate which had been sealed for over a hundred years. So it just makes you wonder if there are some places around us that offer either a window or a doorway or a portal to the past or perhaps allows the past to come to us. What's the matter? What's the matter? You're dragging me to hell. Polly, Polly! You had a nightmare, honey. Mommy, someone was screaming. Scared. No, honey, it's okay. It's okay. Uncle Polly had a bad dream. How much can you believe in dreams? Wait. Wrong. Christopher did not have a dream. A dream I make my peace. He was dead. Science said he was dead. Science. You need to talk to someone who deals with this kind of thing professionally. What kind of thing? He's in New York, Paulie. In Nyack. His name is Cullen. He's a psychic. A psychic? Get the fuck out of here. He's famous for contacting dead relatives for people. He contacted my dead friend Ronnie. Remember Ronnie with the arm? Yeah. He knew all about the fingers at the elbow, and I didn't even tell him. He said, Johnny is here. And I told him I didn't know any Johnnies. But then he said, well, one arm is shorter than the other. Does that mean anything to you? Ronnie. It was Ronnie. Jesus. Fucking creep show. You got nothing to lose except the nightmares. Diaries written by a French aristocrat who lived in a gloomy medieval castle set among the apple orchards of Normandy tell the story of one of the most violent hauntings ever recorded. Known simply as X, he recorded in vivid detail the extraordinary events that turned his historic home into a nightmare in the year of 1875. They began without warning. Everyone in Calvados Castle had settled down for the night when they were disturbed by a ghostly wailing and weeping and rapping on the walls. The noises were heard by the entire household. X, his wife, his son, his son's tutor who was an abbot and their servants. After several nights of increasing noise and disturbance, the aristocrat instructed that fine threads were to be strung across every entrance to the castle. He hoped, of course, that in the morning they would be broken, proving that someone had entered and was trying to terrorize them, but the threads remained intact. There was no escaping the fact that the forces within existed within the castle walls. 
On Wednesday, October 13, 1875, X began keeping a diary. That night, the abbot was alone in his room when he heard a series of sharp taps on the wall and a candlestick on the mantel place was lifted by an unseen hand. The terror-stricken priest rang for X, who found that not only had the candlestick been moved, but also an armchair, which was normally fixed to the floor. For the next two days, the pounding on the walls, the footsteps on the stairs, and other unnerving phenomena continued unabated. X and the abbot armed themselves with sticks and searched the castle top to bottom. They could find no human explanation. By October 31st, the castle was hardly ever at peace. X recorded in his diary, A very disturbed night. It sounded as if someone went up the stairs with superhuman speed from the ground floor, stamping his feet. Arriving on the landing, he gave five heavy blows so strong that objects rattled in their places. Then it seemed as if a heavy anvil or a big log had been thrown at the wall so as to shake the house. Nobody could say where the blows came from, but everyone got up and assembled in the hall. The house only settled down at about three in the morning. The following night, everyone was awakened by what sounded like a heavy body rolling downstairs followed by blows so ferocious they seemed to rock the castle. Over the next few days, the haunting had become so violent, the family felt it could not possibly get any worse. But greater ordeals were to come. On the night of November 10th, X wrote in his diary, Everyone heard a long shriek, and then another as if a woman outside calling for help. At approximately 1.45, we suddenly heard three or four loud cries in the hall. And then on the staircase, cries, screams, moans, which sounded like the cries of the damned. He reported that heavy furniture was moved, windows flung open, and more terrifying, Bibles were torn, their pages desecrated. The family began to wonder if the powers of darkness had taken over the castle. X's wife suddenly became the focus of the attention. Hearing a noise in the abbot's room, she crept up the stairs and put a hand to press down the latch on the door, but before she could touch it, she saw the key turn in the lock and then remove itself, hitting her left hand with a sharp blow. The abbot who had run up the stairs after her, saw it happen and afterwards testified that Madame's hand was bruised for two days. That night, something hammered on her door so ferociously she thought it would break down. The new year brought only fresh terrors to the wretched family. Louder, louder the knocking, more persistent the voices. The worst day of all was January 26th when the noise was thunderous. It sounded as if demons were driving herds of wild cattle through the rooms. Peals of demonic laughter rang from the ancient walls. The family had had enough. The next day, a priest was called in to exorcise the evil spirit. 
and the family saw to it that every religious medallion and relic they possessed was placed in full view. The treatment was effective, and at last, the hideous uproar ceased. To the family who believed they would be forced to abandon their home, the peace that followed came as a blessed relief. But the ghostly tormentors of Calvados had not quite finished. Shortly after the exorcism, all of the religious relics disappeared. Then one morning, as the lady of the house sat writing at her desk, an unseen hand dropped them one by one in front of her. There was one short burst of a violent sound and then silence. What's the problem? What the hell's the matter? Oh, please, go on. He can't hurt you. You don't have to be afraid. I understand. Yes. I feel your anger. Who the fuck are you talking to? Charles. Yes, yes, you have a son. You're with your son? The fuck? I don't got no kids. Oh, oh, Sonny. Legano? Kind spirit. Is your name Sonny? Charles Pagano. How the fuck do you know that? He says he was your first. But I feel many more. Hey! That one's laughing. Poison Ivy? He wants to know if it still itches. Don't fuck with me. Who you been talking to? I'm afraid I'm going to have to ask you to leave. Why? What the fuck are they saying? You really want me to say it? Fuck you and this bullshit. But that's what this is, you know. Satanic black magic. Sick shit. I'm asking you to leave, sir. Eh? Fucking quiz! Deep into the hole 
heal your shrinking soul But there won't be a single thing that you can do He's a god, he's a man, he's a ghost, he's a guru They're whispering his name through this disappearing land But hidden in his coat is a red right hand Catastrophic plan designed and directed 